Hello, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever it is uh, while you are listening to this. Welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. Uh, my name is Glenn, and this is episode number 82, and it's part number four of our series that we're doing called Women's Voices You Need to Hear. Uh, if you want to know more about the series, go back a few episodes to the one with Cindy Wong Brandt. And I spend a good, I don't know, five minutes or so in the beginning, uh, kind of sharing the uh, vision, the idea, the beating heart uh, behind the series and what it's all about. Uh, but real quick, we're clearing the stage and uh, handing the microphone to some uh, women who have made a impact on my own faith journey, uh, my walk with God, my understanding of the Bible. Uh, things that I think about regarding spirituality, Christianity, uh, all the things, giving them the mic and uh, letting them share their hearts, their minds, their thoughts, their wisdom, uh, their story, all the different things. And uh, it's been a, a wild ride so far. And today is no different um, as we are sitting down with the one and the only uh, Nora Speakman. And uh, she's going to share her story with us and uh, encourage us to find our courage, as the title of this episode uh, leads you to to think. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited for you to meet her. Uh, a few things really quick. Uh, number one, uh, Patreon. Patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show uh, financially. So if this thing has encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, consider please giving to the show. Uh, all the money goes to pay for the hosting fees, for the blog, for the podcast, uh, for the website, for all of those things. Uh, money also goes into a pot of sorts uh, to help me get to the Wild Goose Festival um, every summer. And uh, I just bought my, my ticket to the, uh, to the weekend. I also bought a ticket to a pre-festival event. I bought my parking pass. I will be able to pay for gas all those things, and also the next up will be a hotel room, uh, because you can go there and you can camp, but uh, I'm not a camper, I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> that's just not my thing, you know, um, I've tried little bouts of camping here and there in the past, and no, it's just not really my thing, so I like to go, uh, go for the day, uh, escape a little bit at night, I'm an introvert, so I like to go back to the hotel room uh, with my journal, and uh, sit there and read and think and process and sleep and get up the next day and do it all again. So anyway, uh, patreon.com slash whatifproject. Uh, and also there too, uh, every every tier of giving gets a reward. So uh, you give a little something and I give something small in return. So go and uh, check it out. What If Project Community is a place uh, where you can go to find people, maybe like yourself who are rethinking their faith, asking questions, expressing doubts. Um, it's a place where nobody's trying to convert anybody to their religion or their way of understanding. It's a free-flowing place where people are exchanging ideas, uh, sharing their hearts, and uh, cheering one another on on the journey. So links to those things will be in the show notes, uh, along with a link to the What If Project Heretic Shop. So if you want to buy some merch... Uh, that's the that's the term I guess people use nowadays. Some merch, some swag. Uh, we got hats, we've got T-shirts, we've got jackets, we've got 
tote bags, we've got backpacks, we've got stickers, all sorts of things. So go check that out. It's called the What If Project Heretic Shop uh, because because why not? You know, people often refer to us as heretics, so let's wear that sucker as a as a badge of honor. Why don't we? So uh, I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. You can go to whatifproject.net, click on store, and it will take you there um, as well. And uh, lastly, one of the things that we're doing in this series is before we roll into the conversation is uh, I'm reading for you um, usually a small excerpt either from a person's book who's coming on the show um, or we're going to be talking to that day or some sort of uh, feminist theology or some uh, poetry written by a female voice. And today what I want to do is I want to read for you a very small paragraph as we roll into the episode uh, from a book called Jesus Feminist by Sarah Bessie. And uh, Sarah was going to come on the podcast for uh, this series, but she had some things going on in her life, and she uh, asked me if we could postpone um, our conversation for a later date. And so what I want to do is I've been reading through this fascinating book that she wrote, um, again called Jesus Feminist, subtitled An Invitation to Revisit the Bible's View of Women. And I want to read for you uh, this paragraph as we roll into our conversation with Nora. Uh, So here's what Sarah says. Jesus said, you must begin with your own life giving lives. It's who you are, not what you say and what you do that counts. Your true being brims over into true words and deeds. You cannot be full to the brim with Christ's love and peace without spilling over into the lives of other people. You learn how to love by being loved. You yearn to heal once you are healed. We receive goodness and bread. And then, of course, of course, we want to point every other hungry beggar on the road to the source. Amen to that. And this, my friends, is my conversation with Nora Speakman. Enjoy. When you've been cast out, when you are filled with doubt, there is hope as pain that carries the weight of shame. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. Uh, Today, we are sitting down with a very special guest, uh, author, podcaster, all-around amazing human being, uh, Nora Speakman. So, Nora, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to talk with you. Thank you, Glenn. It has been something that I've been looking forward to for some time. Um, I really, I follow the What If Project. I follow you and I love everything that you're doing and what you stand for. So thank you for your contribution to bringing heaven to earth. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, likewise, I would say the same uh, about you. I first heard about you from our obviously mutual friend, um, Alexander Shia. And I was talking Mm -hmm. with him one day and he mentioned your name and I was like, who is this woman that he's speaking so highly of? And so I went on Facebook and I discovered you and all these great things that you're doing. And now I guess we've quickly become uh, friends and you've been a big encourager and support for me and my family in this podcast. So I really just wanted to kind of kick it off and just say, you know, thank you for believing in me and the What If Project and the podcast and all the things that we're doing. You're so intentional with your encouragement. And I think that's, that really draws a lot of people to you. 
Well, thank you. And it's, it's interesting when we purpose ourselves knowing that what we say and what we do is not only for us, but it is for the world. And it's, it's our part of healing the world together. Mm. It's very true. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of power in the words that we use. And you strike me as somebody who is very intentional with your words. And uh, I think they make a big impact. Thank you. Thank you. It's, um, that is actually a huge part of my story, Mm. um, which I know that we will get to and unfold. So yes, park the flag. Yes. So actually, why don't we just jump right into that? You know, I wanted to kind of hear your story a little bit. I've heard bits and pieces here and there. I listened to some other people's podcasts that you've been on, but uh, for maybe our guests who haven't heard anything about you, um, who are you and what's your story? Uh, what do you, what do you do? Uh, how did you get to where you are today? Tell us, tell us all the things about Nora. Well, that's really fun. Uh, my <laughs> whole platform, in fact, my ebook on my website is who are you and why are you here? Mm. Um, and there's a story obviously with that, but I grew up here in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I am a very proud Texan. I pray for that every night because it's a little arrogant, but <laughs> I've heard the, Texans the, are very proud, very proud. People. You know what? I, I think because we're just such a big state, we're sure. such a neat state, you know, I mean, other states, it's like you can't even recognize what they are, but Texas is, is known. We have the yep. Alamo. It's just, I could spend an hour just talking about Texas Glen. Mm. So we won't do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I do have my cowboy boots. I have several pair and I've been wearing them since I was a little girl. Nice. Um, yes. So with that, um, I was born here uh, on one of the, in one of the poorest parts of San Antonio and yet uh, never really knew that I was poor. Um, mm. A largely Hispanic area in San Antonio. And when my parents first moved there, um, it was probably in the hmm, probably early 60s. Mm. Um, and it was close to where my father worked, which was Kelly Air Force Base. At the time, it was still a full-fledged working base uh, before BRAC happened and all of that. Um, And it was largely not a Hispanic neighborhood. It was largely largely white America. Hmm. And when my parents moved in and some of the other families, uh, people from the base, a lot of the original families began moving out. And it was kind of this white flight, as they say, the expression. and a few stayed, and, and it was an interesting time because I didn't recognize color. Mm. So I grew up next to um, very dear friends of ours, and I'll never forget coming home uh, with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And my mother was just appalled. <laughs> she said, what in the world are you eating? And I said, it's peanut butter and jelly and it's Mm. delicious. And she said, what, what is it? And I said, it's just like a sandwich. I said, it's like a sandwich that we do with deli meat, but it's peanut butter and jelly. And I taught them how to make bean and cheese tacos. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds so ridiculous, but I'm telling you, there was this beautiful cultural exchange Mm. that was happening and we didn't see that we were different. We saw that we were unique in, in gifts to give each other. Mm. And that's what we did. And, you know, it was fascinating to mm. understand that. Um, we grew up Roman Catholic and our house 
was like my big fat Greek wedding. Mm. We had heaven throughout the house. I mean, life-size statues and we had rosaries, you know, hanging on a corner in case you had a sudden petition. And I talk about this in the book I'm writing. Um, Jesus was a guy I knew setting Jesus free so he could rise to be the Christ. Mm. Um, Because I think that so many of the ideas that we see through the lens of a child if we do not go further to understand why we believe what we believe, then we almost give Jesus what I would call small box syndrome instead of smallpox. Mm. <laughs> we put him in a small box and yeah. we don't ever let him out of that space. Mm. So it was really important for me as I grew up and, and as I understood um, why I did these rosaries. And it was a a time thing for me. If you've ever prayed a rosary, they're about 20 minutes, unless you do like these very, uh, the longer versions of them with different uh, add-ins here and there, depending on what you're praying for. Hmm. But I'll never forget, it was even my way of keeping time, right? So I had experienced my sister making a beautiful fish braid in my hair. And uh, when I went to school, they asked me, how long did it take to create that? And I said, 50 Hail Marys. Hmm. (laughs) You counted a rosary. (laughs) It was my reference. And uh, yeah, so back then I couldn't be an altar boy and I wanted to desperately. Um, But I loved serving in the church. And by the time I could read, I was probably 11 and I was already a lector. Uh, in the mass, which mm. a lector gets to read the readings. And I didn't know until I was not, not any longer a card-carrying Catholic that Paul was in the Bible. I thought he was just this guy that wrote prolifically. <laughs> there was always a letter from Paul. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> well, where the heck is he that he has to write all these letters to all right. these folks? But <laughs> <laughs> So, so I was shaped by these parents who gave me an understanding that we are not here for us. Mm. And I think that the beauty of the Catholic church is it is all about servanthood mm. and giving back and remembering that you can always find somebody who is in a worse position than you. Mm. It's about suffering. Well, um, if, if you're familiar with Henry Nowen, um, yeah. You know, his work is just speaks to the heart of what is the beauty in Catholicism. Mm. And I wanted to be a nun. I really believed uh, that I would be. And I set myself apart for Jesus that way. And it wasn't until I was 16, um, my parents forgot to pick me up from school. And a high school counselor offered to give me a ride home. And he ended up taking me to a a yucky, seedy motel and raping me. Mm. And it devastated me. Mm. It devastated me because I felt disqualified. Mm. I felt unworthy. Um, My childhood dream of being this nun and serving. I had even spent a summer at a convent. Um, being with the nuns and and sweeping and just the time of silence. And I loved it. Mm. And I just really knew with everything in me that it was, it was a calling for me to serve God. Now, back then I didn't know there were other ways to serve him. Right. Yeah. 
Um, and it was the faith of a child to say, I just want to be set apart for him. Mm. And as I look back, so much of this was shaped by fear. Um, my parents would say, we have to pray so that we're not moved by the world. We have to pray so that we stay set apart. And so there was this weird um, thing as I look back that my serving Jesus was really because I was afraid of him not loving me. Mm. And if I was serving him, well, then he had to like me because I was serving, right? I mean, it was this performance-driven thing. My parents didn't know what they didn't know, and they mm. didn't realize that this was creating this understanding in me. But that experience of rape just sucked the life out of me, and I didn't understand what happened because I didn't have conversations like that with my parents. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, the response they experienced was one that was very fear-based as well. And I ended up deciding out of my own choice that I wanted to be homeless instead of being so uncertain. Mm. And I lived on the streets for a year and a half. I maintained my 4.0 GPA in school. I was in gifted and talented classes and I maintained my tennis game because I knew in the long run that tennis was going to get me a bed effectively. Mm. Um, so on the street, I faced a lot. I learned a lot about people. Um, to this day, I believe that that experience helped shape the way that I discern, um, the way that I'm able to read a room, the way I'm able to read situations, to see beyond what people are saying. Mm. Um, I was held at knife point and gunpoint. I was, I learned to forage in what trash cans for decent food. And you learn not to get caught because as a kid, you get put back where you came from. Yeah. And that was a risk, um, for me that I didn't want to, didn't want to take up, uh, the chance of happening because I didn't know what to expect. Mm. So I had teachers. Uh, who were amazing and knew a little bit about my situation, would bring me food, maybe some clothes. Um, but, but the reality was if they knew, then they had to tell. So they kind of just stayed on the fringes of it. Mm. But my graduation night, that day it was the, of the graduation, I went to Goodwill and I had a couple dollars and I bought myself a dress, much like a parent would. And I had this cute little buzz cut because I couldn't look like a girl on the street. Mm. And I crossed that stage. And on the other side of that stage was my senior English teacher. And when I crossed that stage, she gave me the biggest hug and she looked at me right in the eye and she said, I always knew you could do it. Wow. And I've never forgotten her and I'm still in touch with her. Mm. But the very next day I took the city bus and I went to the university um, the local, the local school it was a college at the time. It wasn't as big as a university. And I met with the tennis coach and I said, who do I have to beat? I need a bed. Mm. <laughs> and he didn't know who the heck I was, but as I told him, <laughs> you, you cannot beat adversity and adversity will be our greatest teacher if we let it. Yeah. So I played the number two person on the team and I beat her and uh, got a scholarship 
And so I got myself in school. And from that point on, I would say the next week, I found out there was a psychologist uh, on campus and it was free. Mm. And that began my journey to healing the very next week because I knew I needed to understand what I had been through. Mm. Uh, I knew I needed to understand my childhood. And gratefully, this psychologist was a very progressive spiritual person who, as I look back, gave me many keys uh, to the life that I have today. Wow. What a, what a beautifully profound story. I have so many questions in my head, <laughs> but wow. Thank you so much for, for sharing that and being so uh, vulnerable with us. I kind of, as I'm listening to your story, one of, one of the questions that comes to my mind is, you know, how, how did all of that like affect how you viewed God? So you came out of this, this home where you felt a sense of devotion to God. You wanted to um, serve God. You want to serve in the convent. You want to be a nun, all these different things. Once this experience happened with, with the rape, did you, did you portray what happened to you at all onto God? Did it negatively affect for a little while how you felt about God? And I asked that because that's kind of the experience I had with my, with my father. I, I, now looking back after going through some healing, um, mm-hmm. I realized that growing up, the things that happened to me from my dad, I portrayed that back onto God. Did you have like a similar experience? Well, interestingly, so for whatever reason, Glenn, I have always been given, I believe by God, an understanding of people in a really Mm. weird way. So Mm. I can remember instances that my daddy would drink. Mm. Um, He was a functioning alcoholic. He was an alcoholic. And that's when I was very young. He's, he does not drink at all now. Um, and my mom was very anxiolytic because she couldn't control what my father did. And I remember a time when I was as little as six, um, my father had spent a little too long at the bar, which that was not even something he did often, but Mm. when he did, you know, he indulged and he ended up getting a ride home because he was there so long. They stole the battery out of his truck. Mm. So now he had to come home and face my mama. (laughs) (laughs) I'll never forget. You know, they are just so angry and yelling. And I stood in the middle at six years old and I said, this is what we need to do. Mm. We need to go get the truck. So we're going to have to take the car. And I was this mediator and peacemaker and I could see right through chaos and split it like the eye of a hurricane. Yeah. And, but what's interesting is I do resonate with you in the sense that what I realized many, many years later is that I would make my voice, the voice of reason and the voice of elevating others. But my fear, my pain didn't matter. Yeah. Right. And as far as God was concerned, the interesting thing with with that is I probably had more of a sense of abandonment. And 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 later I realized that I probably believed that the rape happened, not because I deserved it, but because I probably wasn't good enough. Mm. Yeah. Right. Because it was performance for me. So. There was something about that. And so I took on all of the onus. Hmm. 
I think there's something to say too about it's very easy to look at somebody else's story and see, you know, maybe give that person advice or see the good in that person and their story, but it's always a little bit more difficult to look back at your own story mm-hmm. and see the same in yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the courage that I found mm. to do some of these things, actually, when I had my son and I had him to me, I was young, I was 20, about to turn 21 when he was birthed. And because I had this, this fragile little life, mm. I found this place in me that was absolutely terrified Hmm. of doing wrong. Again, performance, right? Of not being a good mother, of not getting it right. And I developed severe anxiety. Hmm. So much so that I was an agoraphobe and did not leave my house for two years. Hmm. I couldn't even speak publicly. I couldn't go to the grocery store. I couldn't take him to school because I was terrified of people. And I believed that I was dying every day. Hmm. I talk with people and they say, well, you're not like me. I think, oh my gosh, please try me. Right. (laughs) Hit me. Go ahead. Throw something at me. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see what I got. Yeah. (laughs) Your story every time because And people laugh like I'm some Highlander at 47 because I've had so many life stories that required me to step out and be courageous. What did, what, what is, what does healing look like for you? Talk to me a little bit about that because you mentioned that um, you went to see that psychologist and that kind of started your healing process. And I'm wondering maybe even for people who are listening, who have gone through some kind of traumatic experience, who maybe are trying to find their voice, they're trying to um, sort things out. Was the process, was, was it like, was it, were there parts that were instantaneous? Was it more of like, you know, layers of healing? And like, what did it look like for you? Because I think about my story and for me, like a large chunk of my healing came, I was like three years ago when I started the doctoral program that I was in. Mm-hmm. We took a class called Soul Care. And the idea of the class was, you can't effectively lead other people unless you're effectively leading yourself. And that one of the keys to leading yourself is to follow Christ into the places of your deepest pain Mm -hmm. and go there, go to those places. And in a sense, see that you were never alone in those places, but that Christ was there with you all along. And so we had this, these times of like inner healing prayer uh, where the professor would break us into groups and uh, they'd bring in like mentors and stuff like that. And they would pray with us and they would, take us back to these very dark and scary places from our lives. And they would ask God to come and meet us in these places. And so for me, that was like a huge piece of my healing. Uh, mm-hmm. But that wasn't it. Like then I went through counseling. Part of the classes we had to go through like six months of counseling and we had to do like a grief journal where we had to like write through like these horrible experiences that we had. And it was like a, really months and then years, it's been years of processing. So I'm wondering for you, were there, were there big moments? Like, can you pinpoint like big moments where like a giant layer came off? Was it more of like a, a gradual process? Like, what did that look like for you? It's interesting. It's a great question. Uh, for me, it, it's, it's ongoing. I would mm. say I'm still being healed, right? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because I think that the deeper we're willing to get to know ourselves, the more healing we're able to receive because 
we are shedding all of the protective walls. Yeah. And because we get to know ourselves, we get to live into that authentic design that we were always meant to live from. Yeah. And we realize that the pain that has been um, imparted to us through other people is really their pain. It has yeah. nothing to do with us. Mm. And so much of it has come as my spirituality has been reshaped, um, deconstructed, reconstructed. And really it's in understanding that I freed Jesus from that small box mm. and understood that the cosmic Christ is in me. Mm. And I existed long before in spirit then I was physically receiving any of this pain, mm. right? And so when we look at, for example, we go back to the garden and when we say that they were, they didn't realize they were naked, as I've taught it, it's not in my understanding that they are naked as much as they are fully spirit. Mm. And when they leave the garden, when they are clothed, as we say, they are clothed in their humanity. Hmm. They put on our proverbial meat suit, you know, and that yeah. part of us is what endures all of this physical pain. I love that idea that you've been in existence long before the pain happened. Huh. Yes. Yes. Well, part of my, my faith reconstructing is in understanding um, the, the Judaism part. Yeah. Um, so for me, my family is Sephardic Jew, um, and I'll never forget meeting Rabbi, who is the second father to me, at a crypto-Judaism conference. Hmm. And he will say that people who live in South Texas, uh, down into Mexico, 90%, that's what he claims, have Jewish lineage hmm. because of the Spanish Inquisition. So as I was listening to him share he became a big part of my life and began teaching me the understandings of uh, these beautiful rabbinical truths and the, the extra uh, text that we don't look at in the Christian world. Hmm. And one of those things is that in Judaism, they believe that our soul in the journey of sleep every night goes back to spend time with God. And then it returns to us in the morning. And that's why the, one of the first things that a, a, a Jew will do is be grateful for their breath in the morning because they believe they returned from being with God. Hmm. Where is that? Where is that from? That's from the Talmud. That's okay. from some of the, yes. And I'll hmm. find it exactly and send it to you because it's one of the most beautiful teachings. Yeah. I'm just having an image in my head of, sleeping and spirit going back to be with God. That's, that's amazing. Yes. Huh. And that was something that was ingrained in their thinking. Yes. Yes. Huh. And that's why when you consider, for example, Psalm 16 says he instructs us in the night. Yeah. Interesting now for me, just thinking to go back and read some passages of scripture with that thought in my mind and be able to see uh, maybe those things come to life in a little bit of a different way. Yes. Yes, huh. absolutely. So uh, on your website, you have, a, you have a quote. I just want to read it real quick. Something that you said, 
Uh, you said, my passion is to reveal the courage in each of us so that we receive the opportunity to live into the best version of ourselves, not only for us, but also for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering, what would you say uh, now to the person who's listening who doesn't feel very courageous? Maybe they feel like um, there is no courage inside of them. Maybe they feel like mm-hmm. they don't have anything to offer the world. Maybe they've been through something similar to yourself. Maybe they've been through something completely different, but for whatever reason, uh, they feel like their courage is is gone. What would you say to that person? I believe courage comes from acting, mm. right? And sometimes it's acting before we believe we have it. Mm. <laughs> and so I will tell you, when I was an agoraphobe, when I couldn't leave my home, when I felt like my throat was closing, when I my breathing was so rapid and my heart would literally quake within me, I would call the crisis hotline every night. I called the crisis hotline and I would say, this is Nora, I'm dying. And they would walk me through breathing, you know, breathe and take slow breaths. And they would be so sweet and so gentle and they'd stay on the phone with me. Hmm. And this went on every day. Well, one night here I was going through this and I called them and I said, this is Nora and I believe I'm dying. And this woman answered the phone and she said, well, Nora, she said, you call us every night. And I said, yes, I do. And she said, if you think you're dying, why don't you die already? (laughs) I'll never forget. It was like this cold water thrown in my face. And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't want to die. She asked me, do you want to die? And I said, no, I don't want to die. I I have my son. And she said, then why don't you think about what you're grateful for and what you want to live for instead Mm -hmm. of believing that you're dying? Mm -hmm. And I never, I'll never forget. I hung up the phone and I sat there and I cried my eyes out because I realized I was imposing the mental prison that I was living in. And if Jesus came to set the captives free, then I wanted to remain a slave. Hmm. Right. And what I have learned is that we either are walking out in courage in the Exodus. We don't know where we're going. We're following a God who appears to us in a certain way, who promises manna from heaven, or we're in exile. Hmm. So we're either in Exodus or exile, and the choice is ours. And when we're in exile, typically we're alone and we're separated from our family and we're separated from friends. And that's not a very good place. Hmm. So it's in taking little steps that amount to bigger steps. And what I had to do, you're going to laugh, but (laughs) I had a friend who said, we made it to nationals for this tennis thing. And we know you can play. I played in college Mm. and I hadn't played in so long. And I'm thinking I can't even go to the grocery store. Mm. Like I'm just now deciding I want to live. And she expects me to go out of town and play in a tennis tournament. Mm. But my son came up to me at five years old and said, mama, I know you can do it. Mm. And I lived off of that little boy's courage. And I went to that tournament and my racket shook in my hand but I faked it till I could make it. Mm. And I had to either choose to believe or, or not. 
but or not was something that I'd been living with for two years. And I always say to whether it's my coaching clients or people that I get the opportunity to speak to, it isn't until we decide or we become aware that change needs to happen, mm-hmm. that we're willing to take that leap of faith. We're willing to find Christ in us to move forward. We're willing, as he did, to, to drink this bitterness. I think, that's a, I think that's a key is what you said about taking small steps. You know, like, you know, just even just doing those breathing exercises. Like, I think when people, when people, when we compare ourselves to others, you know, like we compare ourselves to maybe someone like yourself and we see somebody who now, you know, you have, you went through this traumatic experience, but now you've got this, you have your own podcast, you're, you're writing books, you're doing these things, you're a coach and think, my goodness, like how in the world did you get from there to here? Like I could never do that, but we miss the fact that there's so many small steps along the way. And sometimes I think for myself, like I forget to celebrate the small victories that I have. Some days, you know, there's some days where, like you said before, healing is ongoing. And there's days where I feel like still like my voice is squashed. I have no voice, but there's other days where I feel like I spoke up for something. And those are moments that you need to pause and celebrate as you move forward. Yes. And what, well, one thing that I've learned is emotions are not truth. Yeah. But we can learn to follow the emotion to our truth. Hmm. So when I'm feeling anger, for example, at something that it's like, what in the world am I getting angry about? Hmm. What am I truly angry about? It isn't typically about what's right in front of you. And what helped me was studying neuroplasticity and our uh, neural pathways and understanding that our brains are wired to work off of memory, Uh. right? And so here's another story that people go, my God, how do you have so many stories? Well, I do. (laughs) 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 And when my, in my first marriage, my husband at the time, my son's father, we ran one of the largest um, tennis clinics in the country for juniors. Um, Kids from all over the world came and participated in our tennis clinics. And I had kids from all over the world live with us for times uh, for tennis for training. But he ended up going, there was a two-story building that was our pro shop. And he went on to the second floor and it was raining. And he was the type of person that was very disciplined. Um, and just because it was raining didn't mean he was going to let the kids go home because they couldn't mm. play tennis. So he put them through some exercise as well. There was a rail that was probably only three feet high that ran around the second story balcony. He never would have done this, Glenn, but for whatever reason that day he did. And he stepped over the rail onto this ledge that was probably another three feet. One of the kids horse playing acted like they were going to push him. Mm. And what is our response? We, we kind of go back and try to catch ourselves when we think that we're falling. And mm. he literally fell. He fell 25 feet onto concrete. Mm. And I'll never forget. I wasn't there and I got the call and they said, you need to get here. There's been an accident. So I get in my son and we get in the car and he's taken to one of the great trauma hospitals here in, in San Antonio. And they put me in what they call a quiet room. And they say, he does not look good. Only the survival part of his brain is alert. Mm. And we don't know if he's going to make it. 
So he is in this state for a good 15 days and, and I don't leave the hospital and I'm getting every book I can on understanding the brain and frontal lobe injury and brain lash as they called it. And I finally decided one day to walk in there and I said, you are not leaving my son without a father. Hmm. You are going to be healed. You are going to sit up. And I was mad because I'm a one on the Enneagram and anger is my first emotion. (laughs) (laughs) You go right. You go from zero to 10. (laughs) Yes. And it's righteous anger. So, (laughs) So I went to the restroom and I came back and that man was sitting up Mm. and he looked at me and he said, is this a nightmare? And of course I was still mad. I said, this has been my nightmare and you are not allowed. And so, and then I just started and I called the doctor, you know, but he had lost about a year of short-term memory. Mm. He didn't know who he was. He didn't know how to walk. He didn't know how to do anything. And it took a year and a half of me rehabbing him at home, teaching him all these things. So I learned about the brain. Yeah. Little did I know that God was going to put it in my bones to say, your voice is a vehicle. Mm. And here I am. And so <laughs> he uses everything. And yeah. that's the other part of courage. It's, it's in the little steps and willing to take them forward, but it's also in remembering mm what we've done and what we've come through. And it may not have felt courageous at the time, but I promise you it was because you're still here. Yeah. That's one of the things I value most about Alexander's work. And I've seen it show up in your work as well is this idea. We often demonize the darkness. We demonize the bad times. We want to push them away move beyond them have nothing to do with them. But as Alexander always says, the darkness is the womb that gives birth to something new. And I think that as you tell your story, like I just see that so many different areas of all these things that have happened to you and all these, this journey that you've been on each moment that feels very dark or feels very scary. You can almost look back and see where God has brought something new out of it. Yes. Yes. I mean, you go back to Cain and Abel, right? Yeah. Yeah. We don't know why they offered sacrifice. We don't know who told them to. That's part of my Midrashic training, right? Rabbi Mm -hmm. Tom. But the beautiful piece in there is when God tells Cain, look, sin is crouching at the door. It wants to overtake you, but you can overcome it. Mm. And that is the piece for me that is that tie back to that cosmic Christ, to who we have always been, Mm. that we need to remind ourselves of, that he has given us, that he has equipped us. Define cosmic Christ for us. You've said that a couple of times, and I don't know if our listeners are all super familiar with what that term means in the context of how you're using it. Well, I will tell you for me. And that could be a whole another podcast, I know. (laughs) Right? It really could. But the short version is um, Jesus and the Christ was not born in Bethlehem. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) He goes further back than that, and it's an eternal perspective. Mm-hmm. knowing that that same power is within us. And I'll tell you, one of the beautiful things is understanding as we look and we read scripture. And mm-hmm. so we go back again to Genesis and we see that God hovers over this chaos that is this tumultuous water and his very presence calms it and creates. Mm-hmm. And that is transformation. 
right? The temples that he had us build, whether it's in the Israelites world, whether it's in the Toltec world, whether it's in the Egyptian world, they all have an understanding that water, eternal water flows underneath it. Mm. That is the basis for the temple. Well, we are that temple now. Mm. His eternal water flows through us. Mm. We are the trees of life. And it's that beautiful understanding. And I'll tell you what's really fun as I say all these things. And I have to chuckle to myself. For those that follow me on Facebook, they know that my sweetheart, who is a doll, who supports and encourages me all day in Alexandria, and he's a brother, mm. is one of the most linear people that you'll ever meet. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. I could see that. <laughs> And so some days he, he'll just look at me and go, I don't even know what you're saying. Right. You know, like have this conversation with Alexander because I don't even know what to do with it. <laughs> you're just blowing my mind right now. <laughs> That's funny. But at uh, the same time, it's understanding that he teaches me. And I think that that is the thing for me as I preach on identity so much is that we learn to love who we are and who we are created to be, mm. and that we don't try to be someone that we're not, and that we don't try to look at someone and say, I wish I could be like them. I'll tell you the worst thing about anxiety is existing in a sphere and in an arena where you think everyone else is normal but you. Yeah. You know, or you have some, some uh, whatever it is that you're experiencing and you think, why can't I just be normal? Well, yeah. normal is as normal does. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there is no normal. We are all created in the image of our creator. That is mm. love. Mm. That is love. And, and this, you know, leads me to the other work that he's given me to write. And that is, it's titled Underdeveloped Love. Mm. We think of underdeveloped countries. There are countries that are not realized yet. They don't have everything they need yet. I believe that oftentimes we are underdeveloped in understanding just what we have available to us so that we can function in a way that is healing the world. Hmm. We can't heal the world just like you learned in your class unless we heal ourselves first. Yeah. So we're nearing the uh, end of our time. Time is flying by. Um, but I wanted to ask you really quick, maybe share with us, uh, first of all, where can people find you online to learn more about you? But what, what work are you working on now? You mentioned the, the book that you're working on about Jesus. I know you and Alexander have something brewing as well. So maybe share a little bit about, about those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. People can find me at noraspeakman.com. What a great name to have a podcast. That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have planned it any better. <laughs> that, was, that, was it. that put me over. When Timothy introduced himself, I said, I'm going to have to figure out a way to get him to marry me. Right. <laughs> But uh, norraspeakman.com, I'm on yep. Facebook, I'm on uh, Instagram, and, and I am on Twitter, but I don't get involved in politics. If you want politics, you have to follow my husband. Yes, uh, he has more of the political <laughs> voice. <laughs> totally. totally. Uh, and it's always in love, but as and we've had that, those discussions, I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Bring it in. But um, Alexander John Shia who is the author and creator of Quadratus of Heart and Mind, the Four Gospels journey for radical transformation um, who makes it brings tears to my eyes just to say his name because mm. of what he means to me 
And I know what he means to you and to so many. Yeah. He is a, a voice of love. He is a voice of, of teaching in the most beautiful way. Mm. Um, and because of our familialness with each other, he is family. He is my kindred spirit. Mm. We decided to birth Shia Speakman House. And Shia Speakman House will be a home, a family of people, of artists, of writers um, that will have a place where we can commune with each other's ideas, where we will publish books, where we will eventually have even a family of podcasters uh, and podcast, obviously, mm. and so much more. It will be um, the most beautiful place. And, and especially, I think, for those that feel that they're on the fringes mm. as we represent ancient truths in a very modern way. Yeah. Wow. I think that's going to be great because there's a lot of people who feel like they're on the fringes trying to use their voice, talking about these things that are rather obscure, um, maybe in places where they grew up in. And I think it's just so beautiful that you guys want to help give a platform or a voice or a place for those people to come together and commune. I think that's beautiful. Absolutely. And when yeah. my husband first met me, he thought I was crazy because I said, everyone should live in a commune at one time. <laughs> yeah. We should all know what that is. And I think those are the, you know, I often will say, what is your Trinity? And mm. at one point in my life, my Trinity was fear. It was um, anger. It mm. was indecision. And now my Trinity is belief. It's, it's faith. And it's understanding. Mm. And when can people expect to see uh, Shia Speakman House? Where will they find that? Where will it pop up? It will pop up in February. Okay. We are doing all of the framework for it. And uh, our logo is being tidied up. Uh, I got a sneak peek of that, by the way. I like it. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. And and you, of course, are family to both of us. No, thank you. We just love what you're doing. We love that you make everyone welcome, Glenn, and, and your heart is as big as Texas, and that's a huge compliment. Oh, well, thank you. That means a lot to me. And this book you're working on, when, when are we going to see that, the Jesus book? My Jesus book will be out in June. It is okay. my birthday gift to myself. So, yes. So that will launch in June, and it is going to be fun. And I think that a lot of people will find their own story. Um, in that small box with Jesus. <laughs> yeah. You've uh, put a couple blurbs up here and there on Facebook and it sounds very intriguing. So I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank you so much. Oh, for sure. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you for joining me. Uh, I want to have you back on again uh, real soon, but I uh, will make it happen maybe in the summer. Uh, I would love that. It'd be my honor. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you, Nor. You have a great night. You too. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. When you When you are filled with doubt, there is hope past pain that carries the weight of shame.
out.